Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Today, we're honored to feature an archive presentation from the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography. In October 2013, distinguished historian and biographer David Levering Lewis delivered the sixth annual Levy Center Lecture. Levering Lewis, a MacArthur Fellow and two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, has written critically acclaimed biographies of Martin Luther King Jr., figures of the Harlem Renaissance, and W.E.B. Du Bois. He started his Levy Center Lecture by explaining how he came up with the title of his talk. Uh, The humbling truth is that the page before me remained blank for several days until I was saved by an epiphany about the biography enterprise. It occurred to me to call my lecture the autobiography of biography. Rather astonishingly, it came to me that after biographies of uh, three major public figures and biographical chapters in three or four uh, history books I've written, I had never given much thought to biography's theoretical dimensions. Indeed, insofar as the matter rises to an articulation, I've always been averse to theorizing about the art and craft of biography. Like uh, Disraeli's biographer Lord Blake, who offers the cautionary analogy of the biographical centipede, unsure of her next step because of too much cerebration, my practice has been to let the facts find the theory. Permit me to suggest, moreover, that a preoccupation with theory was a defensive response by academic biographers in this country to the condescension until recently of traditional humanists and social scientists pervading higher education for many years. The truth of this observation was quite frankly conceded as recently as four years ago when the American Historical Review, the AHR, published a roundtable discussion of the merits of biography. And in this lively roundtable introduction, David Nassau opined in the spirit of Leon Adel that Biography remains the profession's unloved stepchild, occasionally but grudgingly let in the door, more often shut outside with the riffraff. Ten years ago, most uh, history departments still discouraged dissertations tethered to biography. Biography had lost its purchase in deconstructionist English departments where the meaning of the text trumped the intent of the author after Roland Bath announced the death of the author. The new social sciences regarded the study of the individual as of limited value in the scheme of understanding institutional forces. The research university was not the place for a biographer to make a name for himself. Those who did 
mostly did so in their spare time. Yet, scholarships stepchild or no, some of us predicted early on that biography was destined much sooner than later to earn envy tinctured acceptance from the crustiest humanists and social scientists. One felt in one's bones that Alfred Kazin was right to write that the deepest side of being American is the sense of being like nothing before us in history and historical conceit that privileged biography as the narrative par excellence of the exceptionalist experience. One saw biography nourishing the average reader's appetite for resonating life stories and capturing the educated public's esteem whenever narrative craftsmanship was sustained by critical judgment. One remembers the honest dismay and downright cupidity overheard in faculty clubs and hotel bars at annual association meetings about poaching journalists and amateur scholars writing biography and history bestsellers. Nor was there much generosity of spirit evidenced when a credentialed scholar caught the brass ring as with the Pulitzer and National Book Award that went to T. Harry Williams's 1969 Huey Long biography, or with Fawn Brody's experimental Thomas Jefferson five years later. A run of major biographical studies informed by race, gender, culture, and transformational politics, some by professors, others not, gradually induced a critical reappraisal of prejudices within the academy during the 1980s. Interpretive revelations of Lyndon Johnson, Ulysses Grant, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Booker Washington, Cotton Mather, Alice James, Oscar Wilde, and Harry Truman, to cite only these among a number of impressive others. <clears throat> Thus, Biography is now so securely established in contemporary academe and in popular culture that most of the concerns of the AHR roundtable either seem no longer relevant or have become commonplace insights. Today, when history departments permit biographical dissertation topics, their concerns are far less about biography's uh, legitimacy than whether or not the student possesses the special interpretive sophistication and emotional distance biography demands. Whether within or outside the academy, biography now has a much better sense of its possibilities and therefore of its responsibilities. As to biography's revelatory possibilities, well, they have become so formidable since Lytton Strachey's time that, as British biographer Michael Holroyd once wisecracked, biographers have added a new terror to death. <laughs> when James Anthony Fruity shocked eminent Victorians by disclosing his friend Thomas Carlyle's sexual impotence, his source was none other than his friend the deceased, the subject himself. In an unfinished life, JFK, Robert Dalek called Kennedy's medical records in order to calculate the number of pills the president swallowed daily to control his Addison's disease. The revisionist impact of DNA upon Jeffersonian biography ought prepare us for similar upheavals as this science's recuperative potency advances. Could some future J. Edgar Hoover biographer 
corroborate Gore Vidal's innuendo and Anthony Summers' research about the African-American genealogy of the malevolent FBI director? To be sure, many of us are rightly anxious. Nevertheless, as we see the recovery of the papered past become increasingly problematic, as grand epistolary collections to tell a life story box by box become scarce, as office memoranda are consigned on legal advice to shredding machines, as written documents obey the Gresham's law of email. That's it, however. We may yet find the balance sheet of recoverable information incommensurably enlarged in this bulimic new age of social media, WikiLeaks disclosures, and the omnivorous Orwellian possibilities inherent in the National Security Agency. Which leads us, I think, to ponder the responsibility question confronting biographers as they traverse this expanding new techno-universe formed from unknowns that may become increasingly knowable. If, as the French say, to understand everything does not mean that everything is forgiven, the biographer might reformulate the maxim to read that even when all the questions are answered, the challenge remains to assess their explanatory value. A curious deficit in introspection is commonplace among professional historians, which is, I think, a function of the inductive way we do history and of the temperamental aversion most of us develop over time to theorizing about the value of what we do. And yet, to indulge a paraphrase, is the unexamined biographer's life worth living? As I've said, until this invitation to talk about myself as a historian and biographer, I had given only occasional and casual thought to what brought me into the profession, to why I have ranged so broadly, as we've heard, as almost to render myself suspect in the eyes of some of my more austerely orthodox peers. And finally, and more dauntingly, how biography mediates and shapes the nation's image of its many selves. The privilege of this lecture invites a rumination on the relationship of the biographer to his biographies, to wit, the autobiography of biography. Examining my career then, I find myself constrained to admit that I would have been surprised when I emerged from graduate school if some seer had predicted a modicum of distinction in the field of African-American history and biography. For my nurturing, both familial and academic, was what could be characterized as resolutely mainstream, majoritarian, assimilationist. As the youngest son in a secure and relatively comfortable home, as a carefully encouraged pupil speeding through high school in two years, and as a confident collegian who experimented with a semester of law school before deciding to pursue history in graduate schools in New York and London, I emerged from these experiences minted as pure, talented tenth. 
My earliest memories go back to the cloistered college community in Wilberforce, Ohio, where my father was dean of the theological school, and to a long parade of academic, ministerial, civil rights, and other worthies sitting down to and rising sufficed from the family dinner table. Memories tend to inflate in such matters, but I think I don't exaggerate in saying that many of the past and future dissertation subjects in African-American history came to our home. Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., W.E.B. Du Bois, Marian Anderson, Walter White, Channing Tobias, and Thurgood Marshall come to mind. My family and its circle were like the characters in a Jesse Fawcett novel committed integrationists whose demeaning existence at the margins of mainstream America we interpreted as worse than a crime. It was a social absurdity, yet an absurdity we passionately believed to be susceptible of attenuation through exemplary feats of professional and intellectual breakthrough. We were self-consciously what Nell Painter has called representative Negroes. Thus, one badge of civic and social eligibility for us was that of mastering the history that white Americans claimed as their own. We would recognize the kindred ambitions confessed in making it, Norman Motoritz's Arivist memoir. Steeped in the contributionist historiography of the family dinner table, I came into my teens unaware that most Americans, blacks as well as whites, were ignorant of the key facts and main outlines of Negro history. And so it was the key facts and main outlines of other histories that I found most intriguing. As is the way with such turning points, I fell into U.S. history, a U.S. history major by chance, late in my second year at Fisk University. It was the messenger as much as the message that I found inspiring the way the professor seemed to annihilate the time distance between his students and the subject under discussion. At Columbia, a thesis on the late 19th century's premier public intellectual and social Darwinist, the Harvard College librarian John Fisk, no connection to Fisk University, was my dress rehearsal for writing a biography of ideas. After Columbia, came the London School of Economics, and in rapid succession, a tutor in political philosophy, the renowned K.B. Smelly, and one in French history, the distinguished William Pickles. Reading modern French history and politics with Pickles turned out to be a graduate school nirvana. After two trimesters of lectures, tutorials, and fabulously rewarding reading hours in the old British Museum and its Collindale newspaper archive, I went off to Paris for dissertation research, residing in Versailles with a delightful royalist family hard by the chateau. The experience did wonders for my French, my palate, and my insights into those social and political cleavages cherished by French people across the generations. <laughs> I chose a biographical topic for a dissertation, once again aiming to use an interesting life uh, as a window uh, opening onto the regnant ideas and movements of a period, namely biography as historical metaphor.
I focused on the young founder of a group of liberal Catholic laity, Emmanuel Mounier, of the personalist movement and his seminal monthly review, Esprit. Ranging across the wide spectrum of Catholic opinion from Jacques Maritain to Gabriel Marcel, Mounier's review undertook from 1932 till his death in 1951, the construction of a third force in French history that would transcend both socialism and capitalism. The experiment failed uh, badly in the left-right ideological vise of the Fourth Republic. With Mounier written, defended, and accepted in the spring of 1962, I left England for Fort Benning, Georgia, and induction into the US Army. The Army, in its wisdom, sent me right back to Europe as a psychological technician in a special unit based at Landstuhl, Germany. After all, I was a doctor. <laughs> I managed an honorable discharge after 18 months through an academic loophole that got me my first teaching post as a lecturer at the University of Ghana. I arrived in Accra two months after the death of W.E.B. Du Bois. I taught medieval and Renaissance history to some of the brightest students of my career. Assassination attempts against President Nkrumah uh, seemed to occur just about every month, most likely assisted by the CIA. Malcolm X passed through Accra on his return from Mecca, leaving Maya Angelou and the sizable African-American expatriate community in a state of exaltation for weeks afterward. Ideological conflict among faculty persuaded me to leave the University of Ghana after only one year. By the time I got back to revising the dissertation for possible publication three years later, Mounier felt stale. My second venture into biography became instead a major article in the July 1970 issue of the Catholic Historical Review entitled Aspects of Political Crisis in French Liberal Catholicism, 1935 to 1938. It was certainly gratifying to read the excellent and overdue appreciation in English of Mounier in Tony Judd's first book, Past Imperfect, French Intellectuals, 1944-1956 in 1992. In the spring of 1968, after two research summers in Paris, I had begun to write the book that I hoped would establish my credentials in modern French history. It was to be called The Clerk in Politics, a study of the ideas of eight French writers whose works had generated a dedicated public and political uh, following. It included Mounier, but no women, I'm now chagrined to say. Suddenly, Life veered off on an unforeseen course that year when the senior editor of Penguin USA, William Weatherby, wrote to propose a biography of Martin Luther King Jr. as part of Penguin's Great Leaders of the 20th Century series. I had already missed most of the Civil Rights Revolution, had no professional interest in writing about it, and possessed only a vague impression of King, whom I'd seen briefly only twice. Furthermore, it struck me as preposterous to write a biography of a 39-year-old dynamic public figure as it would be more than likely be out of date before publication. I was just about to mail my declination when the news broke on the evening of April 4, 
that Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot to death in Memphis. The rest, as they say, is biography. <laughs> it was a perfect, it was the project of a lifetime, a unique opportunity to write about the promise and the mirage of America as the land of opportunity. That summer, I blitzed the South and resided for a week in Chicago, interviewing the major personalities, digested the primary and secondary sources, made the first use of the King papers then at Boston University. King, a critical biography, appeared in time for the second unofficial commemoration of Martin Luther King's birthday in January 1970. Its reception by professional historians was uniformly gratifying. Unfortunately, Weatherby and I both overlooked the negative connotation of critical in American English usage. <laughs> Mrs. King uttered a frosty appraisal. The Ministerial Alliance of Baltimore ordered parishioners not to read it, thereby making it a bestseller in Baltimore. <laughs> uh, King, a critical biography, closed on a poignant uh, speculation. To imagine a Martin King surviving the electoral summer of 1968 raises plausible speculations whose promise and pain are stupefying, I wrote and wondered to myself how far Americans in our country would have embraced Lyndon Johnson's great society and Martin King's beloved community. When Ruth and I saw the new King Memorial together for the first time last summer, we found ourselves speculating about how much that promissory note memorably cited in the dream speech would still be unredeemed by the time of the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The King statue confronts Jefferson's memorial directly across the tidal basin a perfect study in contrasts. Jefferson, the personification of democratic ideals traduced by his own slaveholding hypocrisy. King, the embodiment of democratic ideals whose own society was loath to honor. From that morning's speculation came the thought that the reissue of a book about Dr. King and his times, even though written some 40 years ago, and superseded by Taylor Branch's monumental trilogy, might profit the historical curiosity of recent generations. King, a biography, retains its special value as a biography written in the unique interpretive space between Martin Luther King Jr.'s death as a beleaguered public figure and his future beatification as America's greatest secular saint. A man, for all reasons, an elastic fetish is potent for one cause as for another. Working at a furious pace, I quickly became aware that the past would soon become unrecoverable from its future. It was still possible to track the Mike or ML, the privileged son of a powerful uh, fixture of Atlanta's racially segregated conservative black upper middle class as he absorbed his family's rich religious tradition, acquired a more cosmopolitan academic culture in Boston, 
alternately led and followed the black freedom movement as it accelerated beyond the control of his nonviolent passive resistance until he surpassed the civil rights parochialism of peers in order to combine racial emancipation, economic democracy, and world peace into a transcendent, if still inchoate, philosophy of human rights that inspired many, yet puzzled and offended many more. But now, a half century after Memphis speaks to the great majority of our citizens as a splendid emendation of the American creed. Because I came from the same Atlanta social background as Dr. King, I found ready access in the turbulent summer of 1968 to prominent families, peers, teachers, associates, opponents, and public officials most since deceased, whose first-hand memories were as yet unsacralized by an an apotheosized Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Easy access was also a challenge to the biographer's judgment as I moved across the country. Lanky, voluble E.D. Nixon, Pullman Porter, guardian of Black Montgomery, Alabama's long-smoldering indignation, bounded into the Holiday Inn Uh, dining room to tell me about the internecine leadership competition among the city's preachers and teachers in the hours after Rosa Parks' arrest that put a surprised newcomer at the head of an organized bus boycott that would change history. Ella Baker, the multitasking civil rights indispensable, who said she seldom meets uh, an NAACP official or preacher she respected, served the cause in spite of its misogyny and what she still deplored, as did Julian Bond and Charles Sherrod of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee as Martin Luther King's penchant for opportunistically dropping into and out of local protest hotspots. J. Edgar Hoover's cordial declination of my interview request was accompanied by a recent speech of his on liberty and vigilance my home telephone line immediately emitted the telltale clicking sounds of a tap. (laughs) From his uh, imposing desk at NAACP uh, National Headquarters, Roy Wilkins carefully explained to me how much King's several successes were enabled by the legal assistance and bail money provided by his organization. The, The inference was clear. Uh, that King's challenge of racial discrimination in Chicago and Detroit had been precipitous, that it had alienated the labor and liberal allies of civil rights. Well, Martin King had foreseen the national backlash, his speaking out against structural inequality and the Vietnam War would cause, speaking off the record to SCLC staff members a few months after Selma, he told them, We are treading in difficult waters because it really means that we are saying that something is wrong with capitalism, that there must be a better distribution of wealth. And he went on to say, maybe America must move toward a democratic socialism. Forty-five years after his death, King's prescience was confirmed just this month by news reports of the greatest wealth inequality since 1928. 20% for the top 1%, 48.2, thank you very much, for the top 10%. 
It may be of particular interest to this audience to know how I, as a biographer, failed Virginia Woolf's injunction to keep one's sense of truth alive and on tiptoe 40 years ago. Biography remains an art with few rules beyond the most basic ones embedded in the methodology of research. But there is one rule that all who try their hand at it come to know. Until the protagonist reveals his or her character, his or her inner self to the biographer, what the biographer produces is less a life than a report, an autopsy, rather than a seance. The premise of an ego needing to overcome the comfortable expectations of his family history was fundamental to my reading of Martin Luther King Jr. Becoming just another Baptist preacher in highly stratified black Atlanta, settling for a father-son co-pastorship of the family church immediately after graduation from Morehouse College, conflicted with King's need to excel as an impressively credentialed, culturally liberated professional. All the more reason then that I found the documented evidence of plagiarism at Crozer Theological Seminary and Boston University shocking, ultimately inexplicable. After all, I had read King's hefty philosophical dissertation, interviewed his major professors at Morehouse, Crozer, and BU, and devoted a chapter to his intellectual growth entitled The Philosopher King. With an apology to Virginia Woolf, what else can I say? After contributing the confessional essay, failing to know Martin Luther King Jr. to the June 1991 volume of the Journal of American History. A weird collusion between the student and the professors this must have been, with none of them knowing that one of them would become Martin Luther King Jr. My King biography ought have awakened me fully to the extraordinary abundance of virginal sources and variety of germinal interpretations in African-American historiography. Black studies were then on the march, but I still didn't get it. Instead, I returned to French history and an opportunity to write a research breakthrough on the Dreyfus Affair. With an advance from William Morrow and royalties from King, I sailed away with my family on a Yugoslavian freighter for a year abroad in summer 1971. The quest was to secure access to the so-called secret dossier deposited in French military archives in Paris at Chateau Vincennes in order to write a supplemental history of the defining politico-cultural crisis of late 19th century Europe. The dossier consisted of evidence manufactured by French army intelligence to sustain Alfred Dreyfus's conviction at the infamous second trial at Rennes. None of it had been used, however, because its fraudulence was finally deemed too obvious even for a military court-martial. <laughs> Rather than destroy the materials outright, the Army General Staff locked them away in 1899. This untranslated fraudulent evidence had been discussed only once by the chief of manuscripts of the Bibliothèque Nationale, Marcel Thomas, who had consented to support my petition to write about its significance for an Anglophone readership. 
When Monsieur Jean-Claude Devaux, head of the section historique de l'armée at Vincennes, turned the key in the lock on the metal cabinet in his office, I felt that day that the ultimate aphrodisiac is not power, but access to restricted documents. <laughs> The secret dossier left historical outcomes unchanged, of course. Rather, its significance was the documentary explosion of what little remained of the stubborn 20th century myth that the Army High Command had opposed judicial review of the case until the very end due to the welter of confusing information and the honest mistakes bureaucracies inevitably commit. Nor did it alter the outline of the Dreyfus narrative to devote what was then the first full rendering of Alfred Dreyfus's Devil Island tradition. What that did accomplish, however, was to put Dreyfus, the man, at the center of his own narrative during the time when the title of the most recent book, French book, was L'Affaire Sans Dreyfus, The Affair Without Dreyfus. Enriched by personal correspondence, official documents, and memorable interviews with octogenarian Dreyfus family descendants, I came to an appreciation of a strikingly noble protagonist, many of whose supporters became bitterly dismissive when he accepted a presidential pardon after a second court-martial conviction. But it was my judgment that a solitary Devil's Island prisoner, lacking Alfred Dreyfus's mental concentration and physical regime, would have expired long before there was an opportunity for Emile Zola and Georges Clemenceau to mobilize world opinion with unforgettable prose in his service. The book, uh, Prisoners of Honor, The Dreyfus Affair, was published in the fall of 1973 the Princeton Reviewer in the Times was clearly perplexed that the African-American biographer of Martin Luther King had written the book. The Los Angeles Times liked the book a good deal better. And by the time the military book club of Great Britain took Prisoners of Honor as its uh, main selection, I had already begun to reconsider my history agenda. The tug of African-American history had finally become irresistible. And in 1976, my agent proposed a book to Knopf on the Harlem Renaissance that would be the first deeply researched comprehensive study of a period largely known for the Charleston, the Cotton Club, and bibulous slumming by fashionable whites. Enormous but relatively unused correspondence collections at the New York Public Library's Schomburg Center the James Weldon Johnson Collection at Yale and philosophy professor Alain Locke's letters at Howard University made the topic another aphrodisiac of an experience. But I had a larger agenda in mind than my contemporaries Nathan Huggins or Robert Bone, namely to insert the much neglected middle class front and center in African American historiography. I hoped these collections would tell me what I expected to learn. Namely, that I would find clearly stated in these exchanges a self-conscious determination to construct an arts and letters movement in the service of civil rights advancement, a strategy of civil rights by copyright, the phrase I ought have chosen as the book's subtitle. The Harlem Renaissance 
I wrote about was an elitist response on the part of a tiny group of mostly second-generation, college-educated, northern, and generally affluent African-Americans to the racial straitjacketing of their people in the immediate aftermath of the Great War. Self-conscious and high cultural at first, this minuscule black vanguard, a mere fraction of the racial total, jump-started the new Negro arts movement, I argued, by using the NAACP and the National Urban League and their respective publications as its proselytizing vehicles. For a time, it linked together the cultural rebellion of the white lost generation of Floyd Dell, Waldo Frank, and Eugene O'Neill, thriving in Greenwich Village with the racial assertiveness of the new Negro arts movement of Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson, Jesse Fawcett, Charles Spurgeon Johnson, rising in Harlem, a collaboration of Manhattan's two Bohemias. Professor Locke grandly predicted that Harlem had the same role to play for the new Negro as Dublin has had for the new Ireland or Prague for the new Czechoslovakia, to which the cosmopolitan James Weldon Johnson added, nothing will do more to raise his status than a demonstration of intellectual parity by the Negro through the production of literature and art. Alfred and Blanche Knopf seemed cagely to agree, as did Albert Bonai and Horace Livwright, whose doors were the first to open to Harlem's writing literati, six of whom I tried my best to resurrect in their own uh, Harlem haunts. Alfred Knopf knew them all, and much of my success in capturing the considerable egos and large talents of Carl Van Vechten, James Johnson, Walter White, Nella Larson, and Langston Hughes were due to the rich remembrances Alfred Knopf shared with me during a memorable morning's interview. As to who knows a biographer's subject better, it's sometimes a toss-up between the editor and the widow. In any case, Mrs. Johnson, <laughs> Mrs. Cullen, Mrs. White proved equally indispensable. Van Vechten's intimate friend, Langston, had never married, but I found Mrs. Amy Spingarn, widow of the NAACP uh, president, a fount of maternal, philanthropic, and artistic information about Hughes. When the Harlem Renaissance collapsed in the Great Depression, the scrappy 50 or so artists who had been discovered and reeled into Manhattan by Du Bois, the two Johnsons, Walter White and Jesse Fawcett, had produced an impressive corpus of novels, poetry, essays, paintings, Broadway drama, in the final analysis, some of it of enduring significance. The publication of When Harlem Was in Vogue in 1980 engendered critical praise along with a fair amount of valuable controversy. Curiously, my discovery in her opinionated correspondence of the sizzling relationship of Jean Toomer and Mabel Dodge, the jazz age Madame de Stael, escaped much notice. However, the letters, bisexual and homoerotic, of a good number of Renaissance figures presented me with what today's biographers could only regard as a quaint and insignificant dilemma of disclosure. 
because I finally decided that most of these artists, writers, and intellectuals engaged in the struggle of their day for racial rights would applaud today's gay rights advance when Harlem was in vogue leaves the private life of Hughes, Cullen, Locke, Van Vechten, and Wallace Thurman to the discerning reader to read between the lines, a decision that profited George Chauncey's pivotal gay New York, gender, urban culture, and the making of the gay male world 15 years later. When the House of Knopf released When Harlem Was in Vogue, a prospective Du Bois biography was enveloped in enough complexity to make it seem the third rail of biography. It was well known that one would-be biographer had been ordered out of the vast Du Bois collection controlled by Marxist historian Herbert Apthaker, either because he failed some ideological litmus test or because Shirley Graham, the second Mrs. Du Bois, intended to write the biography herself. Access to 359 boxes of the complete papers at the University of Massachusetts Amherst was unavailable, and rumors, mostly untrue, swirled among historians that the papers had been pruned, that crucial material was still in Professor Apthaker's possession. In any case, a sabbatical made possible a year of research travel, starting out in Paris and London, and then Ethiopia, Sudan, Egypt, and Turkey, in order to write a book that brought France and Africa together in what my preface described as one of the great galvanic moments of the last century. The book Weidenfeld and Nicholson released seven years later as The Race to Fashoda, European Colonialism and African Resistance. Meanwhile, there was news that the embargo of the Du Bois papers was about to be lifted and friends and colleagues urged me to construct a preliminary biography proposal. My agent, Clara Smith at Harold Ober, reported that no Du Bois contract had been offered either by a university press or a distinguished commercial house to anyone, yet the quest for a publisher for an African-American communist expatriate was surprisingly elusive. <laughs> Fortunately, at the venerable firm of Henry Holt and Company, which had issued major Du Bois monographs in 1915 and 1939, the senior editor, Jack McRae, expressed considerable interest. A Du Bois biography would of necessity be large and controversial. The research and writing would also necessarily be expensive, as my proposal spelled out in some detail. The generous Holt contract provided for extensive travel and permitted a large degree of independence from institutional responsibilities. In quid pro quo, the biographer committed himself to a completion period of three years, the life of Du Bois in a single volume of 420 pages. No problem, as I assured editor, agent, and wife, and assurances honestly a given, I went off to live in Du Bois's life. I believed, as I embarked on the research for the biography, that this was a subject of enormous significance, an effort to appreciate a life that is the synecdoche of an epoch, a window onto virtually every salient issue of the 20th century, from social science, advocacy, to the politics of social democracy and anti-imperialism. Three years passed, 
as my editor gently noted, <laughs> I was yet to turn in a chapter. I lived in Amherst, Massachusetts during summers and school breaks, persevering foot by linear foot through 359, endlessly engrossing archival boxes. For relaxation, I sometimes drove due west to Great Barrington in the Berkshires, the insular town of Du Bois's birth, and where the inhabitants affected an unmistakable frostiness at the mere mention of his name. I have a vivid memory of taking tea with the genteel head of the local DAR chapter who sighed <laughs> that it was Great Barrington's misfortune to have the statue of a counterfeiter hanged by the British at one end of Main Street and the ancestral homeland of a traitorous expatriate at the other end. The National Park Service marker on the vacant Du Bois family property mysteriously refused to stand upright no matter how often it was repositioned. <laughs> Yet, with all, I was persuaded that Great Barrington must have been an almost idyllic place in which to be born by a golden river and in the shadow of two great hills five years after Emancipation Proclamation as Du Bois lyricizes in one of his three autobiographies. The Du Bois papers are one of the greatest archival treasures, so endlessly engrossing to the biographer that he can feel at times the great sweep and depth of the national odyssey as he opens folder after folder. And there are plenty of surprises, some of them truly stunning. One series of letters from a French aristocrat living in England asked Du Bois for a reading list and general guidance through the race problem in the United States for an article he was planning to write deploring American racism and would be very much obliged indeed for Du Bois's help. The Comte du Valmont received letters of advice, a bibliography, and three parcels of articles all forwarded to a post office box in the village of Harpenden. Du Bois never realized what a biographer of Dreyfus perceived immediately, that the French correspondent was Ferdinand Walsen Esterhazy, the officer whose treason in 1894 had sent Captain Alfred Dreyfus to Devil's Island. After eight years of research and writing, W.E.B. Du Bois' Biography of a Race, 1868-1919, appeared in October 1993. The book covered roughly only half, the first half of the life and times of William Edward Burkhard Du Bois, a major departure from the original agreement with Henry Holt. <laughs> a research breakthrough in the Soviet Union had I felt justified a greatly enlarged project. My good fortune to be invited to return to Moscow had come about in a typically Russian manner. On my own dime and with several telephone numbers supplied by Paul Robeson Jr. and Esther Jackson, I had gone with an interest group to Russia in the summer of 1988. Most prominent Muscovites were away for the season, but not the renowned Russian translator of English fiction, Frida Lury. She extended a cordial invitation to her office. I found her there in the company of some six solemn gentlemen seated at a conference table at the head of which they beckoned me to sit. A few minutes into Madame Lury's translation of my well-rehearsed explanations of the purpose of my visit, 
I noticed the ranking official staring intently at my shoulders and sleeves. Where do you get blazer? He asked. Uh, Brooks Brothers, I replied without thinking. Uh, the gist of the exchange between us was that since Rutgers, my university then, was near New York where Brooks Brothers were to be found, that the Soviet Writers Union desired an exchange relationship with Rutgers, and that if I could facilitate such a connection, I could return soon as a very welcome and honored guest. Uh, strange to report, President Albert Blaustein received the proposal enthusiastically. <laughs> Rutgers and Russia did inaugurate a reciprocal scholars and writers exchange in the high noon of Gorbachev's Glasnost. Russian writers arrived in New Brunswick unannounced, expecting accommodation, and then headed for New York, presumably to the profit of Brooks Brothers. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, I returned for a second visit to the old Soviet Union in the winter of 1988-89 as a guest of the Soviet Writers' Union for uh, successful interviews with officials, academics, and associates who knew Du Bois in Moscow, Kiev, and Uzbekistan. Ala Bobrysheva, the svelte, brilliant manager of Russia's Canadian-American Institute, recounted to me her career high point when, as translator, she presented Du Bois to Khrushchev in the Kremlin. The upshot of their lively exchange was the creation of the Institute of African Studies in the Soviet Academy of Sciences. I came home with an abundance of material, but also a concern about anticipated reactions from an American reading public understandably and uncomplicatedly unsympathetic to an African-American intellectual who extolled the promise of Russian communism the better to be able to decry American democracy's shortcomings. By mid-1990, I had finished writing most of what had become then a very large life and times covering more than half of Du Bois's remaining 95 years, and I could see that to carry on for another 200 or more pages would result in a product uh, handicapped both by elephantiasis and sales price. <laughs> it was about then that the biographer had an epiphany that solved all problems. Two volumes instead of one, to my family's consternation. The first 50 years of the life to end neatly with the close of World War I, the balance of the life to come out in five years or so as Cold War grudges faded and Du Bois's political apostasy benefited from a kinder, gentler hearing among reviewers. In a sense, I warily wished to save Du Bois from himself in order to save his essential meaning to us as I understood it to be. Henry Holt balked initially, but then decided that the strategy was inspired. Du Bois was not an easy man to live with for 15 years. A pioneering sociologist with more degrees than a thermometer, as ordinary admiring black folk boasted, he espoused racial and political beliefs of such variety and seeming contradiction as to bewilder and alienate as many Americans black and white as he inspired or converted.
It was a reading feat to digest the books, articles, newspaper columns, and novels that flew from desks in Atlanta, Brooklyn, Moscow, and Accra as Du Bois assumed a different politics each decade until the synapses in his great brain ceased firing after 95 lucid years. Beneath the shifting complexity of his alliances and denunciations, I saw a fascinating and often deeply moving pattern of congealing inclinations, experiences, and ideas that drove him irrepressibly to a vision of society that became, in contrast to the lives of most men and women, increasingly radical as he grew older. The day finally arrived when the civil liberties maverick was supplanted by the full-blown Marxist that he was often arrogant and imprudent, maddeningly inconsistent, and even ultimately persuaded that what others call treason was the last refuge of the true patriot were, I decided, of less importance than that Du Bois's ideas were fecund and his obduracy deeply principled. I chose to open the first volume of the Du Bois biography with Du Bois's well-timed Ghana exit on the evening before the historic march on Washington and Roy Wilkins's announcement of it from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The NAACP head told the suddenly still crowd, it is incontrovertible that at the dawn of the 20th century, his was the voice calling you to gather here today in this cause. Wilkins asked for silence and a moment almost cinematic in its poignancy passed over the marchers. Mahalia Jackson electrified the great crowd with, I've been buked and I've been scorned. A few minutes later, on that catalytic August day, Martin Luther King Jr., the new shepherd of the buked and scorned, soared into one of the noblest speeches in the history of the American Republic. Ten years before that great day, the souls of black folk, the Magna Carta of black America's civil aspirations had been reissued with a new preface by Du Bois himself for the book's 50th anniversary. What he wrote there should be shared. I still think today as yesterday that the color line is a great problem of this century, it reads, but today I see more clearly than yesterday that back of the problem of race and color lies a greater problem which both obscures and implements it. And that is the fact that so many civilized persons are willing to live in comfort even if the price of this is poverty, ignorance, and disease of the majority of their fellow men that to maintain this privilege, men have waged war until today war tends to become universal and continuous, and the excuse for this war becomes, continues largely to be color and race. To Du Bois, the real problem of the century, therefore, was really the manipulation of race in the service of wealth, and the clairvoyant Du Bois greatly feared that the odds increasingly favored the manipulation of the rich. Thank you. That was Pulitzer Prize winning author David Levering Lewis delivering the Levy Center's sixth annual lecture in the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography on October 1st, 2013. 
Thanks again to the Levy Center and to David Levin Lewis for granting us permission to share this lecture. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. <laughs>